We're going to go one more time today to Mark chapter 13. I was telling my kids on the way here that this is, I think, six weeks that we've been in this chapter, but not because we've had six sermons. We had three other sermons preached in that time. So this is our third time, and I believe what will be our final time in Mark 13. But it, it's good for us to come to this. Three of the Gospels have some portion of the Olivet Discourse. That's what this section is called. Jesus is preaching from the Mount of Olives, answering questions from his disciples. It's the longest sustained teaching in the Gospel of Mark that we have recorded for us from Jesus' words. And it's good for us to study prophecy. It is good for us to understand what is coming. What is next? What are we looking for? What are we expecting? What has Jesus told us to do? That's the type of stuff we're looking for. Quick review, not as extended as last week, but quickly going back to verse 4. If you have Mark 13, look at verse 4. We have two questions that the disciples ask. Number one, tell us when will these things be? What things? Well, he had just been talking about the temple being destroyed, that not one brick would be left upon another. So they say, when will these things be? And second, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And then the rest of the chapter is Jesus' answer. And we've studied, first we looked at the, the first part of the tribulation, and then the middle section is where we picked it up last week, and we'll get to the end in the second coming today. I've been showing you this graphic, just a simple table. There are much more elaborate ones. I'm sure you have seen them. But to be able to see the rapture of the church, which I believe is the next thing on the prophetic calendar, followed by the tribulation, and that's seven years divided halfway. So we have three and a half years that probably won't be as significant. It will be starting off with a time of great peace. And then halfway through, that's where we started last week, halfway through, the Antichrist is going to break the peace treaty with Israel. He's going to go into their temple. He's going to defile it. He's going to set up a, a statue of himself and tell everybody to worship because he's telling himself and proclaiming himself to everyone else that he is God. And then that is followed by the second coming, and then beyond that we could put in the millennium and then the eternal state. There, there's more that we could put on here, but I'm just trying to keep it simple and primarily about what Jesus is discussing. We don't directly find anything about the rapture in this passage. We looked last week at 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at it again this week. And if you have a different opinion, as long as it's based on the Bible, that's fine. I'm just letting you know up front, this is where I'm coming from, the lens through which I'm looking at this, that there is a rapture, pre-tribulational rapture is the term for it, before the seven-year tribulation, and the church will be taken to be with him in the air. So a little bit of an outline I've been showing you. There's the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. That takes us from verse 5 all the way to verse 23. And then where we're going to pick it up today, verse 24, the second coming of Christ. This is what we've been building toward. This is the full answer to the questions that the disciples asked. So I'm going to read for us. Hopefully you've found your place. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read. Follow along, please. Beginning in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth, to the farthest part of heaven. 
Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we approach this passage again and as we finish our study of it this time today, we're asking for help once again. Holy Spirit, you are ultimately the author of this passage. You are ultimately the teacher of this passage, and we ask that you would be that to us today. That you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us understanding that we can rejoice in. Father, let this not be academic today. For those who are familiar with this passage, let this not be routine today. But Lord, let us see that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, may we rightly divide your word today. Would you give me clarity of mind and clarity of mouth? That what you have for us would be clear to us and what we should do in response to it would also be clear to us. And by your grace, Lord, may we obey it. May we do what you show us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are different ways to study a passage, and one way to study this chapter would be to look at all the different imperatives, the commands. And I didn't say anything about this last week, kind of on purpose. The first week, there were multiple commands. I, I gave you five of them. I'm going to move through these quickly. I'm not interested in you writing them down necessarily. I know some of you are very good note takers, and I like that. But I want you to pay attention to the overall, to sort of the, the bird's eye view for the moment. So Jesus said in verse 5, do not be deceived. In verse 7, don't be afraid. In verse 9, be on guard. In verse 11, don't worry. In verse 11, speak what is given you. Verse 14, flee. Verse 18, pray. Verses 21 and 22, don't believe false Christ. Those are the ones from last week. I didn't make a big deal out of them because I believe that that section is written primarily to the remnant who are going to be alive on earth during tribulation. But these last ones are for us. Let's look at the ones for today, starting with number nine in my list. Verse 28, learn. Verse 29, know. Verse 33, take heed, watch, and pray. Verse 35, watch. Verse 37, watch. Now, 
As you look at that list of the commands, the imperatives for this section today, this is going to be a hard question. Some of you are smiling at me already. What do you think my key word is for today? How come only this side of the room knew that? Thank you, Madison. What is the key word today? Watch. And I'm not talking about a wristwatch. I'm talking about being alert, being on guard. That's the command that's repeated here. So here are the main points as I see them in this passage for today. First off, Jesus is in control. Number two, Jesus is committed to his word. And number three, Jesus is coming back. If you've been here for the other two sermons, these are very similar. They're not word for word, but they're very similar on purpose. Jesus is in control. It's not spinning out of control. It's not just chaos. He is in charge. This is going according to his plan. That's verses 24 to 27. That's the second coming in this passage. And then more explanations some parables about them. We see that he's committed to his word, verses 28 to 31. And then Jesus is coming back, verses 32 to 37. So we have the prophecy in that first section of his second coming, but then his repeated warnings that he is coming back. One of my commentaries says that there will be no mistaking it when God finally moves on to the end times stage. Because everything Jesus has been describing so far has been, these are the, the warnings, these are the indicators, these are the signs, these are the birth pangs. It's leading up to, and here it is. I liked what I heard somebody else say some time ago, that when the second coming occurs, it's going to be really easy to figure it out because everything's going to go dark. Everything's going to be black, except you're going to see King Jesus coming on a white horse. He's going to be the light in the sky. That's the sign that we care about. He's coming. Let's go back and work our way through this section a verse at a time. This is verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, we've been reading a lot about that in this section, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I'm reading from the New King James. What's the first word in that verse? Thank you. Not a trick question. I hardly ever trick you all. Be brave. But what's that? That's a conjunction. It's a word that's showing contrast. What is he contrasting for us? Well, we just finished reading that there are going to be false Christs, false prophets, false messiahs. In contrast to that, here is the true Messiah. This is the true second coming. This is the real thing. That's what the word is contrasting. In those days, after that tribulation, what are those days? Those are the events we've been reading about from verses 6 to 23. In those days, the days that these events are playing out, after that tribulation, seven-year tribulation, second half called the Great Tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble, after that tribulation, something's going to happen. Now, in the previous two studies, I've said that there are people who believe all of this applied to AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was conquered, and some people say it's only future, and I'm taking the idea that it's both. But here, if it's only AD 70, it, it kind of breaks down. Because if Jesus were discussing only something that would happen in that first century, then he should have come back in the first century. You with me? And he didn't. 
He hasn't come back yet, not the second coming. He came once. He came to die and to rise again, and he is currently at the right hand of the Father. So I believe it's both. And what he is about to describe here are the signs in the heavens. The sun will be darkened. The sun will go black prior to the return of Christ. I'm not going to take time this morning, but there are multiple Old Testament prophecies about the darkness of the day of the Lord. You can read about them in Joel and Amos and Zephaniah and other places. The stars of heaven will fall. We understand that the heavenly bodies are in specific orbits. We think of the planets in our solar system. That's what I'm the most familiar with. In our case, planets revolving around the sun. And it matters how far they are and how fast they're moving and everything else. There is precision, there is order, there is design in this solar system and in the universe. Now, Colossians tells us how that's happening. There's someone holding it together. Do you know who that is? That would be Jesus. He is holding it all together. And it seems that at this point, he's not going to hold it all together in the same way. And so stars or maybe asteroids or maybe comets, but there are things that are falling. It says the stars of heaven will fall. Or at least they're going to wobble in their orbits. It's going to be very different from what we expect, what we're used to. The powers in heaven shall be shaken. That word shaken is usually applying to earthquakes. So I'm going to make a new word up here. This is a heaven quake being described. That the stars, the planets, it, it's all beginning to look chaotic. Again, Jesus is in control, no question there, but it's not what we're used to. It's not what has been happening since he created it. Verse 26, notice the word then. Notice the word they. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Then, what happens next? After those days, after that tribulation, after the stars are careening out of their normal places, then they. He's done a lot of talking to you. He's been talking to his disciples. But this is they, those who are there in that time after the tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Who's the Son of Man? <coughs> we know that's Jesus. That's his favorite name for himself. We've come across that multiple times in the book of Mark. Jesus will come. How? In the clouds. And we think of cumulonimbus and stratus and all that stuff. Yes, but probably this is more like the Old Testament idea of a cloud, the Shekinah glory. He is coming in power and in great glory. And yes, he's coming through the clouds. And in this description, he's coming through the clouds and he's coming down to touch down on earth. That's what's going on here. He's coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he's going to send his angels a great many angels, a number of angels return with Christ to earth. And what is their job at that moment? They are harvesting. They are gathering his elect from the four winds, from all over. 
They are gathering the elect for glory. And we talked last time. The elect in the Old Testament would refer to the nation of Israel, the, the believers of that Old Testament era. And then we get to the time of the church, and we consider that to be the elect based on the New Testament places like Peter's epistles. But this, I believe, this reference to the elect are tribulation saints. They would be Jews and Gentiles who are alive at the second coming, who are alive on earth, have not died yet. During that final tribulation, they have lived through it, and they are seeing him come. Now, I'm going to depart from Mark for just a minute. If you want to start flipping, I'd like you to look at some verses with me in 1 Thessalonians. Why? Because I think what we're going to read in the rest of this section of Mark fits best if we understand that there is a rapture and that it happens before the tribulation. not trying to do an entire sermon on that this morning, but I, I do want to talk through this. I believe that the church will be spared from God's final judgment on the earth and will not go through the tribulation, and therefore the rapture could happen at any time. It could happen right now, this morning. It is imminent. That's the word, imminence. They could happen at any time. So hopefully you found your way over to 1 Thessalonians. I am going to read chapter 5, and this is more verses than I normally read, but I hope you'll bear with me because I'm going somewhere. We're not going to go into great detail in these verses. But 1 Thessalonians 5 Another way to study the Bible when you're reading it on your own is to pay attention to the pronouns. I already showed you that in our section here when it said they instead of you. We're going to see that kind of thing here again. 1 Thessalonians 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, so he's writing to brethren, other believers, could mean brothers and sisters, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves... Know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Pause there. He's writing to you. So everything's starting off you, you yourselves. Then he refers to the day of the Lord. What's that? We need to know what that is. The day of the Lord includes the tribulation, second coming, and even the millennium. It is a period of time. It's not talking about it was a Saturday. It is a period of time, the day of the Lord. So that's what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about. You yourselves know perfectly, you know completely, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. What does that sound like? It comes as a surprise. It's when you aren't expecting it. That's what he's saying to them. Verse 3. For when they, oh, we changed pronouns. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Pause there. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this what we read in Mark? Like the beginning of birth pains. That's how Jesus described it. The same thing Paul's using to describe here. We're in verse 4. But you, okay, he switched back again. But you, believers, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day, what day? The day of the Lord is in all caps in my translation, that this day should overtake you as a thief. That's not going to happen that way for you. That's what he's saying. Verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We, he's including himself now, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. We're coming to that in our passage in Mark today. But let us watch and be sober. So he's saying we're not part of the darkness. We're not going to have the day the Lord come on us like a thief in the night. 
We're not going to be surprised by it the way they will be. But let us watch and be sober. Let us be ready. Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, drunk, get drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober. Opposite of drunk. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us for wrath. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now when he says, did not appoint us to wrath, he is talking to us, so he's talking to believers, the church. Wrath, well obviously, I don't think I could find any believer who would disagree with this statement. He didn't appoint us to wrath, eternal punishment. But I believe in this context, it is also saying that he did not appoint us to the wrath of the tribulation, the seven-year period, especially the great tribulation. My personal belief, verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. There's that word comfort. By the way, that's not the first time that he's mentioned wrath in his letter to the Thessalonians. If you were to look back at chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, you're, you're right there in chapter 5. Go back a page or go up a little bit on your screen. I'm going to read the same verses I read last week. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So I believe chapter 5, he's talking about the time of the tribulation, the time of the second coming, that it is going to come as a shock, a surprise to them. But it's not going to catch us off guard. That's what he's saying. Why not? Going back to chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 13. But I do, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I want you to know this. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, and every time we see that in this paragraph, he means those who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep, those who have died in Jesus. Review from last week, I know, and a lot of you know this passage. I'm glad. Those who have died in Christ, those who have died in Jesus in the past, he's going to bring them with him. When? Let's keep reading. When is he going to bring those who have died in Jesus with him? Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, second coming, will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, that's an important word, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So I misspoke a minute ago. This is talking about what we call the rapture. And the word rapture is not in the Bible. We talked about that last week. The, the Greek word is harpazo, and it comes through Latin to us to give us the word rapture. But he's saying we're going to be caught up in the clouds, in the air. That's different from what we're reading over in Mark, isn't it? And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, oh look, here's this word again. Comfort one another with these words. Where is the comfort? 
This is a practical question. I'm not, not questioning scripture, and if you have a different interpretation about whether there's a rapture and when it occurs, that's fine. But where is the comfort in these words if I'm going to go through the rapture, if I'm going to go through the tribulation, or if I'm going to go through most of the tribulation, or half the tribulation? I don't see a lot of comfort in those words in that case. But I do think this makes a lot more sense when we go back over to Mark. If we take this to mean there is a rapture of the church, that those who are alive and remain, those who are believers, leading up to this day of the Lord, that's what we read about in chapter 5, right? Leading up to the day of the Lord, those who are alive here on earth are going to be caught up to meet him in the air, in the clouds. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That, there's comfort in that. And particularly a lot of comfort for that in, for me if it means I'm not going through the seven years of tribulation. Now, back to the book of Mark. The elect, and I believe those are the saved who are there on earth, Jews and Gentiles, during the tribulation, they're going to be gathered by the angels. Now, Jesus is going to finish out his teaching that we call the Olivet Discourse, this sermon that he's preaching from the Mount of Olives to his disciples across from the temple. He's going to finish it off with two stories, two parables. And Mark is the only one who gives us the second one. In fact, Matthew gives us more parables, but doesn't give us that one. So let's look at these, and let's understand that the first parable gives us an emphasis. And, and Warren Wiersbe's commentary is very helpful. I have a table that I'm going to show you, and he was helpful in, in pointing this out to me and helping me understand it. The first parable in verses 28 to 31 emphasize, it emphasizes knowing that his coming is near. The second parable emphasizes not knowing. Did you catch that when I read through it earlier? Have you ever read through this and wondered about that? The first parable, the parable of the fig tree, that's verses 28 to 31, Verse 29 says, it's a command, know. There's something for us to know, K-N-O-W, something I need to know. And then we get down to the second one, the parable of the absent house owner, verses 32 to 37, and it says, no one knows. It says twice, you do not know. That seems like a problem, a potential problem. Well, the difference is who it's addressed to. I believe the parable of the fig tree is addressed to tribulation saints, the parable of the absent house owner, the second one, is addressed to believers of every age. That means it's for us, too. I further believe that the parable of the fig tree is talking about the second coming. And that the second parable of the absent house owner is warning us to be ready because the rapture could happen at any time. And I'll explain that as we go, but that's where I'm coming from. I hope that will help you as we enter this. Now, why do I think that? Well, part of it is, is based on when it's saying, know this, but you can't know that. That leads me to believe we're talking about two different things. As you look at the book of Revelation, I'm just going to point out one thing. Revelation 11 describes that great tribulation, you know, the second half of the tribulation, that three and a half years. It describes it two other ways. It says 42 months or 1,260 days. And I'm good enough with a calendar that if I know when that abomination of desolation is that we talked about, if, if I were alive at that time and I saw that happen, then I can count out 1,260 days and I know when he's coming back. I don't know the time. We're going to get to that. But I, I can pretty much figure out the day because 
Jesus keeps his word. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? So verse 28 says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. We've had parables before. This is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's laying something alongside that we're familiar with so that we can understand something we're not familiar with. That's what's going on here. He's giving us a parable of the fig tree. Usually, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel in most of the parables. In fact, we've had that earlier in the book of Mark. Here it is not necessarily a symbol for Israel. You say, how do you know that? Because we want to compare Scripture with Scripture. And the parallel in Luke says the fig tree and all the trees. So I believe what Jesus is pointing out here is not necessarily just about the nation of Israel. I believe what he's saying is, here we are on the Mount of Olives. At that time of year, they were probably able to look around and say, hey, there's a fig tree, and yeah, it's leafing out, and things are happening. It's letting us know that summer's coming. He's using an illustration familiar to them. Now, I don't know that much about fig trees. I learned a lot when we had that earlier parable, or when he cursed the fig tree. I studied some and, and learned about the pods and all that stuff we talked about then. But what I didn't realize is that, kind of like around here, we have a bunch of pine trees in North Carolina, right? So we don't see as much of the color in the fall as perhaps New England or, or perhaps more toward the mountains. Why? Because most of our trees are staying green. That's the way Palestine is. Not that they have evergreen trees quite like ours, but that most of their trees would stay the same. But the fig tree is different. The fig tree and the other trees that would be like it, the fruit trees, drop their leaves. And because of that, in the springtime, they, they leaf out. The buds turn into leaves. The leaves then are a sign that there, there's fruit there or growing or coming. So they bloom in the spring, and that is a sign that summer's coming. So also, verse 29, when you see these things happening, what things? The events of verses 6 through 23, the events of the tribulation. When you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Now, if you have a different translation from mine, you may have the word he is near at the doors. And that's fine because he is, but I don't think that's what's being described here. Let me explain. Again, let's see what the parallel scriptures say. Luke 21 tells us that it refers to the kingdom of God. So when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Just as that fig tree gets buds on it and then gets leaves on it, we know fruit is coming, we know summer's coming. It's a sure thing. It's something that we expect. In the same way, when you see it, the abomination of desolation, when you see it, these things that will be happening in the great tribulation, know that you are close. It is near. It is coming. And yes, he is coming. That is true as well. At the doors means it's imminent. It's coming. It's close. And I loved this statement from Warren Wiersbe. As Christians, as Christian believers today, we are not looking for signs. We are looking for him. We are looking for Jesus. He said, we are not looking for signs of his coming. We are looking for him. I believe he is going to catch his bride away. I believe that's what's coming next. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I hope you're looking for as well. Verse 30, Jesus continued, assuredly, Assuredly, I say to you, and we've seen that before too, 
Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, your translation may be a little bit different, but what's he saying? He's saying, pay attention. This is important. Listen up. What I'm about to tell you is true, and it's needful. It's important to you. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now we have to know what that generation is. And there are multiple ideas of what this generation is. Let me share with you the ones that I think are plausible. This generation could mean the Jews who heard Jesus speak these words originally would live to see that partial fulfillment in AD 70 when the Romans took over Jerusalem and demolished the temple. Could be. Truly, some of the people who were listening to him lived through that event. So, maybe. Option number two. The generation of Jews who saw the abomination of desolation would live to see the second coming of Christ. So, those primarily Jews, who are alive during the tribulation, they see the abomination of desolation take place, they will live until the second coming of Christ. That also, to me, is plausible. As a matter of fact, that's my favorite choice. Number three, the Jewish people as a whole, because this, this word for generation can also be translated race or family, will survive until the second coming of Christ. And that, of course, is true. Through the ages whether it's Hitler or whoever, many have tried to exterminate the Jews. Go back to the Bible, and, and you read about Haman. So many people through the ages, including the Roman government of that time, tried to exterminate the Jews. They were not successful. They will live until the second coming of Christ. Why? Because he's made promises to them as a people group. So all three of those I believe are legitimate, have biblical basis. I like the second one. It could be some combination thereof. But there is a generation that will live to see all these things take place. I think he's talking about the Jewish people in the time of the tribulation will see his second coming. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. We know from 2 Peter 3 and other places that this earth will burn up. It is going to become unrecognizable after the millennium. And Jesus is saying, you expect the earth to continue as you know it. Did any of you think that gravity was going to stop when you got out of bed this morning? You were concerned of what was going to happen when you tried to walk across the floor? Were any of you concerned that the sun would not be in the sky today and shine and give us daylight? You didn't even think about it, did you? Because we think that things are going to continue. And to a point they are, but there's coming a point at which it's all going to burn. And he's saying, heaven and earth may pass away, but what is going to last? What is going to outlast all of it? My word will never pass away. His word will never end. It will never change. It will never alter. And by the way, he's making himself God at that point. Because in Psalm 119 and other places, the word of the Lord endures forever. He's saying, my words will not pass away. He keeps his promises. And he is coming. Verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. All right, well, which is it? He told me to know, and now he's saying don't know. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That day, again, we're referring to the day of the Lord, beginning with the tribulation, I believe beginning with the rapture, so tribulation and on to the time of the millennium. No one knows. That day and that hour, the specific time of day, the specific date, nobody knows. 
And some of us, I don't know if this has bothered you before, but you get to that phrase, nor the son. How can Jesus not know something that the father knows? Does that bother you a little bit? Because Jesus is God. How can the father and the son, who are both God, how can he not know the same things? Well, where is Jesus when he's saying that? He's he's sitting with his disciples on a mountain. What form has Jesus taken for 30 plus years at this point? He is here in human flesh. He limited some of his omniscience while he was here on earth. He is still God. There's no question. He's completely God. And from the time he became a man, he is still man. All man, 100%. But in his humiliation that we read about in Philippians 2, he came in the likeness of flesh. And he limited himself. So there are things that he did not know as a baby he had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He, need, he had to learn his scriptures and memorize them. And there are some times that we see in the Gospels that Jesus used his omniscience. He knew their thoughts. But only when that was part of the Father's will because he did the will of the Father at all times and completely. So in his humanity, Jesus did not know this. As soon as he rose again, ascended to the Father, yes, he knows this. The emphasis, though, is not on whether Jesus knew it or not. It's not that he didn't know it. The fact is, and here's how it's worded, no one knows. If somebody tells you, I know when Jesus is coming back, ignore them. There have been many people who have set dates. Oh, I know it's on this date. Some of you are old enough to remember lots of predictions around the year 1988. Lots of predictions have been made since Israel became a nation again. I agree. That means that Jesus can come at any time. I'm not going to try to set you a date because as soon as I do, I'm wrong. He says no one knows. So if you have any of those books on your shelf, throw them out. They're not true. John Phillips said the date of the rapture is the best kept secret in the universe. I like that. But he kept saying over and over for his disciples, again, what's our key word? Because I know it's been a little while. Watch. The word is watch. And now we're going to see it happening over and over. How many of you have seen uh, the movie War Room? Have you seen the movie War Room? Great movie about prayer. Provident Films. Kendrick Brothers. It's a good movie. We, it's old enough that we bought it on DVD, and I've heard that movie many times on trips in our van. But we've also seen the bonus features. Anybody seen the bonus features in that movie? Yeah, so my kids are grinning right now. There is a story. That sometimes it's good that they delete those scenes. Sometimes... Not because they're bad, they're just not adding to the plot. This particular one, there is a, a counselor, a, some sort of PhD, and he's doing a class. And he's telling people that they are not in touch with their surroundings, that they're not fully awake and fully alive. And so he gets everybody listening to his advice. And he says, <laughs> Just like that. Now, He then says, now you're fully awake and fully alive. That's what we're supposed to be. See, now some of you did need that, actually. Verse 33. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. This is the fourth time he said, take heed. He said, take heed that no one deceives you. He said, Watch out for yourself. Same word, take heed. Take heed in verse 23. Take heed, watch, and pray. When it says watch, you know what that means? New American Standard says, be on the alert. It means 
Wake up and stay awake. That's what that means. Be awake and be alive, okay? Exactly. Christ told the believers to be on guard. How? To watch and to pray. Why? Because you do not know when the time is. Remember verse 32, he said, no one knows. Now this, this parable, this last one, is unique to Mark, like I said. Verse 34, it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. In Jesus' day, the doorkeeper would be the one who was at the outside gate and his job, when the, the owner of the house came back, it was his job to open the door for the owner. Kind of like your garage door opener does today. That's the idea. And what is he telling this person? Watch. Stay awake. Stay on the alert. This one is actually a different word from verse 32, but it's, it's similar. It means to be aroused from sleep. Both verbs stress the idea of being awake and watchful, according to Hebrew. So be awake, be watchful. Now, let's get practical. How do we do this? If you were that gatekeeper, and it seems like the owner is going to be gone for a really long time, and says as his last command, stay awake. Okay, I can do that for a few hours. I might be able to stay up for one night. If I absolutely had to, I might be able to stay up for two nights. Can any of you just stay awake for an indefinite amount of time? I doubt it. So this is part of a parable. I think this is figurative, but I think it has a literal application for us. And the literal application is be alert, be ready, be on your guard, take heed is what we've seen. What does that look like? I touched on this at the end last time. What does that look like for us to be ready? What does that look like for us to be watchful? I'm going to give you four examples. This is not exhaustive, but I'm going to give these to you because I want us to know what do I do with this information. First off, a commitment to purity. I am going to live according to the word of God. By his grace. I can't do it on my own, but I'm going to do it. With his help, I am going to be pure. Think about the different activities of this past week. Are there any of them that you would not have wanted to be doing when Jesus calls his church to meet him in the air? If so, stop. That's easy. Second, boldness in evangelism, that we are ready to share the gospel, that we are, have an urgent sense of sharing the gospel with others. We talked about that last week as well. And then faithfulness in service. Because what is this doorkeeper supposed to be doing? Do your job. Do your job, man. Just keep doing your job until I come back. Well, what has he given us to do? We read in Ephesians 4, he has given us works to do beforehand. Serve other believers. Serve the church. Be faithful in the things he's given you to do. And then have a loose hold on your possessions. If we believe he's coming at any time, then it's not about all the wealth I can amass. We should be good stewards. But we should hold these things loosely because it's all going to burn. Verse 35, watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. So for the third time, he says, watch, be on the alert. You don't know when the master of the house is coming. 
and we don't know when Jesus is coming. There is an imminence. There is an element of surprise, I believe, for the rapture. Those four phrases, in the evening, at midnight, and so on, it's just the different, four different watches of the night for the Roman guards. So he's saying, it could be any time during the night. So stay awake and be ready, figuratively. Suddenly is not the speed, the rate at which he comes, but the unexpectedness of it, lest he find you sleeping. We must not succumb to spiritual sleep. When God gives us something to do, and I find it fascinating, we're going to get into this a little bit later in Mark. What did Jesus tell his disciples in the garden? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And what happened? They fell asleep. We cannot be spiritually sleepy. We must stay awake. Because that's his last word to us. Verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Be on the alert. Don't be concerned about trying to set dates or figure every little thing out. Be ready. Be ready for my return. Serve. Share. Be ready. Those three main points with an instruction for each. Be comforted. Jesus is in control. Be confident. Jesus is committed to his word. And be ready because Jesus is coming back. Would you bow your heads, please? As we close, is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I don't know whether I'm ready. I don't know whether Jesus is my Savior. But I'm concerned. If that describes you, whether you're a young person or an older person, if you'd like me to remember you in prayer, without embarrassing you, but if you want me to remember you in prayer as I close the service, would you simply raise your hand and put it back down? Is there a believer here this morning who would say, Bob, I do know what I'm supposed to do as a result of studying this passage with you this morning. The Holy Spirit has shown me, and by his grace, I'm going to obey him and do it. And I'd like you to remember me in prayer. Anyone like that? Slip your hand up, put it back down. Yes, yes, yes. Our Father, you see the hands, and more importantly, you see the hearts. And so I pray that we would be obedient to what you're showing us to do. Lord, you're faithful to your word. You are coming. We've got to be ready. And Lord, we can't do that on our own. We can't stay awake indefinitely on our own. But please help us to depend on you to watch and pray that you would sustain us. I pray for the specific responses that you have placed on people's hearts. Lord, may they obey, give grace, give courage, give strength to obey. May we be faithful to you until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.